I never know what people uh, think, what they've heard before they arrive here, but I know that this is the truth. Most of the world is about getting to an acceptable level of quality and maintaining. You hear this all the time. I think some people call it adulting. However, there are people who want to reach higher. They want to change the world and they want to innovate. This is the live event designed just for you. Welcome to our Wednesday live event from the encouragers on the Clubhouse app. We call this Wednesday event innovation in audio. That's exactly what it is, of course. There is no other place on earth where you can meet our guests together and hear their story. If you make a living, from the business of audio, or you love innovation, this event was created for you. Last week, Jonas Group CEO Phil Garini shared with us what CEOs in the talent business are seeing that is totally new and breaks with everything they've seen in the past. You could hear about it by subscribing to the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We are recording this live event for inclusion in the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast. A big thank you goes to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast events and JustJoeProductions.com for creating audio footprint and distributing uh, all of what we do on iTunes, Spotify, and a wide variety of other platforms. Our purpose, uh, pretty specific here, uh, all of our events, our purpose with the encouragers is actually to encourage everyone and anyone who actually earns a living from the business of audio and those who appreciate real innovation and an opportunity to change the world in their corner of it. So please share our clubhouse events because that's where you can come meet our live guest. And this is also where our podcast comes from. So you can listen later on demand anywhere anytime. My name is Lloyd Ford. I am a strategic branding consultant and talent coach with Rainmaker Pathway Consulting Works. Our local radio clients talk about the difference our music lab and our morning show, Fame Development Coaching, make for them directly in terms of both ratings and revenue. We do everything from developing strategy, the best music safe list in the business, to voice tracking, voice trackers, and promotions and sales ideas that turn directly into pure revenue for our clients. If you know someone who has a ratings and revenue challenge or someone who needs a tune-up, we like both. Please introduce us. We'd love to help. Innovation and Audio, our Wednesday event, is really kind of interesting because it has a broader approach than our Monday events. We really focus here on innovation. If you are in radio in any form, in podcasting, or anything that utilizes audio, this event also was created just for you. Innovation and Audio was designed by Skip Dillard. How does it work? There's a great question. If uh, this is your first time with us on Innovation and Audio, uh, with this event, we usually have one person who's deeply rooted in the radio industry and someone who is an expert in innovation who may or may not have a direct connection to the radio industry or even audio itself. We are bringing in an outside perspective because we are most interested in true innovation and perspective that's not usually from the usual suspects. This means, of course, finding others who have experience creating environments of change, focus on the future, and those that have experience handling innovation directly and some audio. Our guest on this live event tonight, Stephen Caldwell, who is PhD, professional coach, consultant, author, speaker, and I promise to use this phrase. I, I even did this with him. I said, I'm going to use the phrase disruptor because that's what you are. And I think people need to know that up front. Also tonight, joining him, who is partner of Above Below Marketing and editorial director of Ogilvy. Now, look, before we started with tonight's guest, let me give you a glimpse on what's coming next week on Innovation and Audio. Wednesday, July 14th, Rob Barnett, founder and CEO of Rob Barnett Media, and Elroy Smith with Elroy Smith, the coach. 
will be here. We've also got guests for this live event on Clubhouse all the way from now until September 1st. You can see the whole list just by going to RainmakerPathway.com and checking it out for free on our free blog section on that website. That website, RainmakerPathway.com, is also where you will find the Encouraging Sales Success Series for local sellers of radio and the more than live and local guest series for program directors and talent. We are here and there are lots of free things you can access from ideas, hacks to bring you more success in your career right on our website. These free resources are available to anyone in the business of audio. We don't lock away anything on our site from anyone. So it's really meant because we believe in something called the theory of abundance which means for us that we know that when you really need help or a different perspective on challenges that you reach out to us and allow us to uh, utilize our authentic services to help you move your business forward. We do want to uh, have you see the way we see things and how we help local clients every day, that's how we get new clients to serve. By the way, we want to encourage the development of mentors and encouragers program, please follow the people on the stage at this event. Look around the room. The Encouragers is also about connecting with others who might be able to make your life and career better. A quick note, we get with our guest event and during the you're about to hear, you may question to ask one or more of our guests. We want to encourage you to ask questions and we ask that you mute your phone or device that once, once you raise your hand on the Clubhouse app and we take you up onto the stage. We will stage. We do ask that you mute your mic though. That is for the integrity of sound on Clubhouse. That's important because if we all end up with our mics unmuted. So uh, we will address you when it's time to, to ask a question. Hopefully that will go well forever. Let's jump right in. After obtaining a bachelor's and master's degrees in mathematics, Caldwell spent 28 years in industry in consumer products, implementing technology-based transformative institutional change. Heavy, right? In the 1990s, while with Coca-Cola, he founded a company called Data Ventures, an advanced analytic data mining company that transformed how suppliers and retailers managed product categories in retail stores. This venture created an alternative system within the industry to the institutional reliance on Nielsen and IRI. At age 50, he left his commercial career and entered earning a PhD in management from Georgia Tech. After 10 years of teaching organized psychology and strategy in university business schools, he wrote several books and is a professional coach and has been involved in various products, uh, I'm sorry, projects associated with transformational change and leadership. His most popular business book is called Winning in a Hostile Environment. Steve, I want to welcome you to Innovation and Audio. How are you? Doing great, Lloyd. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, sir. Well, listen, you, you worked for a long time in consumer products. I'm, I'm going to guess that you had to focus your attention on what people purchase, what they purchase when they don't buy the product you're working on, and, and of course, how to move behavior or bring new customers to a particular specific product. Is that is that a fair assessment, or how would you describe your work in consumer products? Well, Lloyd, that's a great question. First, let me say that a successful business over time, like a Coca-Cola, focuses mainly on building a brand that consumers will desire. And then they focus on how they work with their customers to partner with those customers to satisfy their consumer demands. Early on, I was focused primarily on process transformation. Most change in the 70s and 80s and 90s was technologically driven to make internal practices better. I put technology in the hands of grocery buyers. We were the first in the world to do that. I pioneered handheld computers to transform route sales delivery. Then in 1990, the president of our company, we were the second largest Coke bottler in the U.S., came to me and said, you have to change the behavior of our customers. Well, needless to say, this was different. 
This required a different kind of innovation. This required market innovation. We were in the midst of cola wars. If you were an adult in the 90s, 80s and 90s, you remember that if you went into a retail store there was highly discounted Coke and Pepsi products. Week one, one week, one the next. Oh, I remember the major, those cola wars. <laughs> yeah, the cola wars, the major retailers were price promoting national brand soft drinks in ever terrifying ways. They were commoditizing the greatest brands in the world through deep price discounting. This behavior was driving the value out of years of successful branding. More, moreover, um, Nielsen and IRI were partners in crime. They were the gatekeepers of the scorecard. Their methods were outdated and perpetuated the status quo behavior of retailers and manufacturers. It took over six years and resulted in starting a new company, you mentioned Data Ventures, to accomplish this change. I had to basically do two things. I had to control the narrative and I had to transform the metrics. Let me give you a, just a quick example. The major supermarkets believed uh, in the 90s that 90% of their soft drink sales were from deep discounting of ad feature items and the price promotion brought customers to their stores. Now this was an assumption that was deeply held by our retail customers. I presented the facts. Only 25 or 30% of the category sales, the entire soft drink category, were done by the ad feature item. And only 10% of the people walking in the store even knew what was on ad. Now wait, did you know that already from your internal data? or We, and we went, we knew that that was the obstacle, so we went and studied the, um, the issues to come up with metrics that were uh, more accurate and more representative of, of the reality of the market that dispel the myths that our customers... So the first thing I had to do was dispel the myths, and we had to collect objective data to dispel those myths. And I can remember sitting in the meeting with executives of a major retailer and I said, you've been very successful as a merchant. Wouldn't you like to make the best use of the 70-something percent of product that's not bought on deep price promotion? So I just challenged them as professionals. And they replied, well, of course, but we don't know how. My reply was, well, I do. And that was the beginning of a new narrative and a new set of metrics that did not include Nielsen or IRI. Now, that's a big belief that you have about changing the narrative, correct? The, the narrative... You, the, when people ask me, how do you do transformative change? The, if I had to give one answer, it's control the narrative. All right, so let me ask this question. I, I, wanna, I, I want us to really focus in on the word innovation for a minute, okay? Uh, so we talked about the act of innovating. Where do people go wrong when they think, I want to innovate? In other words, is there a proper way to innovate, Steve? Well, let's start with a few definitions. Uh, at the heart of, of innovation is the term creativity. And the word creativity simply means the production of new and useful ideas. So within organizations and within industries, there has to be creativity, there has to be new ideas. And they have to be ideas that are practical and useful. But just generating the idea is not innovation. Innovation is the implementation of these transforming new and useful ideas. So in innovation by definition basically is a change process, but it is a specific kind of change process. Most people think of innovation as either process innovation, in other words, figuring out how to do things better, cheaper, or product innovation. That's generally what you hear when you hear people talk about innovation. And most innovation is process innovation. Uh, my son-in-law worked at Pepsi in the executive ranks at one time, and they formed an innovation team. So I had him explain to me about that team. It was all about process change. They were only looking at how could they service their customers better. It had nothing to do with transforming the market itself with their products. Real innovation is very different. Real innovation transforms markets as a discontinuous disruption of market participants' behavior, both customers and consumers. 
And we'll talk about that a little bit more, uh, but it's, it's extremely important from my perspective that uh, any business, any industry professional get a good grasp on the difference between the customers and the consumers. I really like that too. Can you share with us, uh, because I, I know you've, you've written a number of business books. Can you share with us your seven reasons organizations fail? I will. Uh, let me make one more comment on the previous question because it's an extremely seminal statement about innovation. Okay. Um, first of all, innovation is creative destruction. So if something new is going in, something old is going out. And that kind of by nature makes it problematic. Innovation is not a light switch. Like you just turn it on and then you got it. And the innovative leaders must make the moment work while they're making the future right. And this is, let me, let me say that again, because this is the trick and it's kind of why people never get started or they fail. You must make the moment uh, work while you're making the future right. So uh, you have a transition you gotta manage. Now, if you get to the reasons that organizations fail, which some include the innovation subject, but you, you asked me. So in my book, Winning in a Hostile Environment, I discuss seven reasons that lead companies to fail. So here's a kind of a brief list. Each one obviously is its own topic, but it all gets around this topic of innovation and change. Um, first is failing to understand why someone would want to be your customer or consumer and knowing the difference between the two. This, this is extremely important. A lot of people intuitively know this, but very few companies sit down and uh, intentionally understand the psychology of the customer and the psychology of the consumer. The customer is who buys your product, the consumer is who uses your product. So your customer is really your, the, the revenue source. It's the transactor in the business. The consumer is the one in which you build the endearing, lasting relationship with. Uh, broken pricing mechanisms. Uh, that was particularly true in the consumer products industry. Uh, most pricing systems were built around uh, uh, efficiency and predictability of margin production and they were not market sensitive at all. So that was one of the things we had to transform. That was the hardest, cause that's like the golden grail of, grail of, uh, of retailing, of consumer process pricing. Uh, another big one is managing strategic initiatives as if they were utilitarian. This is just simply recognizing the difference between being effective and being efficient. Uh, Home Depot almost destroyed themselves when they brought in a Nardelli because he, uh, focused on making the what made Home Depot strategic. He only wanted to make them efficient, and so he destroyed the brand uh, uh, that Home Depot had with their customers and consumers. Uh, controlling cultures, in other words, cultures that have a high controlling uh, value, constrain creativity. If you without creativity, you you, you never have any uh, change in and in, uh, innovation. Institution, institutional imperatives stifle innovation. Now, I think one of your speakers earlier talked about institutionalism. This is one of the greatest threats to creativity, change, and innovation because it plays on the human need to be legitimate more than to be right. So we're, we're more likely to conform to the rules because we can't be blamed if something goes wrong. Sixth, uh, misuse of metrics. I talked a little bit about how I had to tr transform the metrics that were used to understand what was really going on. That's so, right, because the people that you were dealing with were misunderstanding the value of Coke as a product, correct? Yes, the metrics that were being used did not highlight the reality of the brands and the power of the brands. And the uniqueness of the brands across the various products in the various products. In other words, Six-pack Diet Coke and two-liter Pepsi, both are soft drink products, but they have very different consumer dynamics. And um, the, the retailer didn't know that. We had to measure that. So we had to have, uh, and Nielsen didn't measure it. IRI didn't measure it. So we had to build a way to measure it. The last one is to believe the future will resemble the past. Oh, and that's a big one. <laughs> this is really what Peter Drucker would say. The enemy of innovation is success. It's not size, it's not age. 
is success. So the people who are most able to innovate, the, the leaders of various industries, will not move to innovate because they are so bound to the success that's built in the status quo. Well, they're protecting the status quo or they're protecting correct. the success, correct? Correct, correct. All right. So, so those are those are the seven reasons that I, uh, by the way, I wrote this book, I taught business strategy in college and when I did that, I, after 28 years in the industry, I found that academics teaching business strategy either were too academic or too practical. They never really understood the, the connection between having good principled models but having good experience and practice. So I wrote the book as a, as a way to teach business strategy to Steve, college I, business I, students. I know my next question is one of your favorite all-time questions, and that's why I'm going to cringe when I say it. <clears throat> why is change so hard? <laughs> Well, you, you, you do push my hot buttons on that one, oh, yeah. uh, Lloyd. Um, so uh, change is a, is a real interesting topic, and, and primarily it's full of myths. And one of them is just what you just said. Right. So, so I'll ask your audience here. You got an audience here? I'll ask them. Was it hard to start using your iPhone or social media or binge watch Netflix? Oops. Were these changes really sucky, as some like to say about change? See, humans are made to change. They enjoy something different. Change is necessary to learn and grow, even survive. So the problem is not change and how hard it is. It's understanding um, the various factors of change. So, um, I mean, nobody is doing what they were doing 20 years ago. You know, has it barely been hard to, to embrace new things in your life? So here, here's, here's what we want to say. When I'm teaching change in college, I, I start with a question. How many of you have heard the, the statement, uh, people are naturally resistant to change? Well, everybody. I would, everybody raised their hand, and I said, well, that's just a lie. There, there's no research that supports that in the very nature of humans is a resistance to change. Then I would turn and ask this question. How many of you believe that people are normally resistant to imposed change? And of course they would see, well, there's, that's very obvious. I don't like somebody telling me to change. So when we think about change too often, we, we restrict our understanding of change. And so we lock into this idea of imposed change. So I would just say this to make it simple. Um, change is a motivational activity. It starts with a willingness to abandon the old and embrace the new. So it is an attachment to the status quo that provides comfort, risk-free living, when in fact, uh, the new is generally has more value, it's more effective. So if someone invites you to change or you decide on your own to change, you'll change in a heartbeat. I've changed people that people told me would never change, I've changed in a 15 minute meeting. Right. Uh, just by rephrasing, reappraising uh, the idea of change in their life. So that's well, a big topic. We don't have time here for that. Well, and I know that you are a huge fan of reappraisal, and and I totally think that just the study of that word can change your life. You know, we live in a time of significant disruption and what I call the innovation century. Uh, how, how can we better prepare ourselves for that change, for innovation, for meeting the mobile moving future? And, and, and Where's where's it going today and where's it going tomorrow? Just a, a kind of a headlight of what you think the future might look like. Okay, I'll give you a quick start by seeing change properly. Or it's, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. See it for what it really is. Don't fear it. Own the risk that is in the status quo, first of all. Most people, there's a lot of risk in where we are. But we don't, we don't look at that risk. We look at the risk of the new. Recognize the risk and own it that's in your current situation. Develop a, a regard more for being right than for being liked. Because change agents, if you, are, if you become a change agent, are great targets of the protectors of status quo. Now, is, is that advice for leadership or is that advice for everyone? Well, you're either a change participant or you're a change agent. And change looks different depending on where you are. I would see by don't fear change, 
learn to reappraise, create your own willingness, but certainly a change agent, somebody who's going to take people through change, needs to understand that they are absorbing the risk of the people they're dragging through the change in a sense. Mm. And they have to accept that and be willing. And, and there may not be a large number of people who can really do that. Uh, I've had many discussions on, on who, who, who would willingly lead transformational change. Uh, it's kind of a sadistic thing to do because you do put a target on your back. I, I took all the arrows, all the blood for everybody through these changes until we got through them and then I gave it back to them. Well, and because so, the reward in those situations is not as large as the risk, you would say? Uh, it perceived anyway. Uh, right. you, generally, you generally have an asymmetry between the risk and the reward and that's what keeps people in the status quo. So you have to work through that. You can't right. fear the other side. Uh, it's it's a well, those, of, it's a are, leap of faith in many ways. Uh, so, but Steve, those are big words. Don't have any fear about the change coming, right? Isn't that what most humans kind of get caught up in? Well, yes, they. Uh, it's all caught up in blame. If if I do something outside the status quo and I fail, I can be blamed. If I do something in the status quo and I fail, I'm just following the rules. I'm just doing what's normal, and so I personally can't be blamed. That is a deep, deep, deep-seated part of human psychology. Okay, so let's change let's change this pattern a little bit, and let me okay. ask this question: Is there a person or a company that you could point to right now, and you go, you know what, they do an effective job innovating? If so, who who would that be? Well, I've always uh, started with Steve Jobs, uh, even though he's no longer alive. He changed what he he changed the business Apple was in. He transformed how society connects as opposed to just producing computers. He got people doing things they didn't even know they wanted to do. He found ways to put technology in the hands of people like my wife who never would touch technology. He didn't invent any new technology. He packaged the whole thing around a brand, a trusted ecosystem. He changed the way people talked to each other. It was truly a market innovation. I think uh, Bezos is doing a similar thing. It's very interesting if we got a moment. In, 19, in 2008, I was teaching uh, in the business school, and the big thing was the Walmart effect. People thought Walmart had changed the entire economy because they were so big and so powerful. In 2014, the, discuss, the articles were, will Walmart survive? In six years, we went from Walmart being a behemoth, a, 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 this large thing that nobody can control, to not even sure it can survive because of Amazon. So those would be two I would, uh, I would point to. All right. So if you could give someone on this live event or its resulting podcast uh, the, the best direct advice about change, changing opinions, innovating itself, what would you choose to give that person that might prepare them for the future that's coming at us today? Okay, Lord, I'll give you my elevator statement. How, how to give it. Innovation starts from looking at the business or your industry from the outside in, or it's from the market, from the, out, from the experience of the consumer back in. Innovation is not product innovation or just process improvements. Innovation is a market phenomena about providing new experiences for the market participants. If you're a change leader or an innovator, do two things at least. Control the narrative, and transform the metrics that capture what is happening. Status quo metrics are a gravitational pull for legitimacy and works against change. Interesting. So, so listen, this is, I don't know if you call this a question or how do you feel about this or whatever. We had a guest on last week on one of our live events and they just happened to sort of mention they weren't name dropping or anything. They did this for a purpose. They said, our broadcast company met with a billionaire, guy with a B, very impressive. And he started the meeting out by saying, look, if you're here to try to convince me that you're gonna change the habits of all these people, save your breath because you're not getting any of my money. But if you wanna talk about innovating around a habit that people have or something that they want, I'm all in. Do you agree with that, or, or are you just like you want to go the whole full distance? Well, he may have made a distinction without a difference. Um, 
you can't innovate something new without destroying something old. Mm. So uh, I, I, it, it, he may be meaning that uh, capitalism at its best might be about making just existing things feel better, work better, uh, look better than replacing with whole new ideas because of the creative destructiveness of capitalism. That's, that's one of the reasons capitalism gets a, a bad rap is because of the uh, destructive nature of, of putting new things in place. So I'm, I'd have to have so further discussion with him on so, that. But. So you're saying that maybe a billionaire would be looking at how can I make more money without breaking the, the mother goose or whatever? I right? don't want to hurt people. You know, yeah, the more when you have a lot of money you can get very philanthropic. I see. Very good. Well, Steve, I do want to thank you for spending time with us and being so generous with your answers to our questions. I'll ask that if you will, to please stick around for a few moments. We'd like to ask uh, our audience at the end of our second interview if. Uh, they have some potential questions for you or other people on our panel. By the way, you can probably tell that we do believe in mentors on the encouragers. Uh, Steve is actually uh, my mentor. And don't forget to connect with the people that are on stage and in this room tonight. I'm a strong believer that we're stronger together and uh, you are better with a mentor. If you have not joined our group, the encouragers yet, please do so tonight. Share our group uh, and our Wednesday night live event at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific called Innovation and Audio, which you're listening to now specifically with your friends in the business of audio. Yeah, you, you probably know this, but please do share with others that Clubhouse events are now welcoming both Android and iPhone users. All are welcome. It takes a while for people to get that message as well. By the way, uh, did you know that you can also nominate others to join the encouragers right on your screen? You can please do this tonight and share the opportunity with your friends to get some weekly encouragement if they love audio or innovation or both. Also, don't forget Monday night's live event with the radio rally coming this Monday. We're calling it our Being Real on the Radio event. David Dubow, Market Town Square Media, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, will be here. Also, Steve Carr with Kramer and Jess Mornings on Mix 106.5 WWMX. Baltimore will be with us. And we'll also have a special guest host, our co-host, Devin O'Day, who is the new media host and developer at Main Street Media, who will be co-hosting our uh, vacationing Heather Frogler, who usually is the co-host for the Monday event. Make plans to join us now Monday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for great insights from both of these radio pros. Now I get to turn my attention to uh, Skip Dillard from WBLS and Hot 97 in New York. And uh, Skip, you've got a great guest for us, don't you? Absolutely. And I uh, just want to thank everybody for being with us tonight. And uh, um you know, just uh, really some some great comments from from Steve and Lloyd. Appreciate our conversation right now. I'm I'm so pleased to welcome uh, marketer, branding strategist, and social media uh, observer <laughs> Jeremy Katz uh, to the room with us. Uh, Jeremy, how are you tonight? I'm very well, thank you, Skip, for asking. It's great to be here. Hey, well, so glad you could join us, and I enjoyed your editorials on LinkedIn and. We'll get your information at the end of this. I encourage everybody to go on and, and watch. You had some very interesting thoughts on Clubhouse as well. You have quite a job keeping up with marketing and branding in the digital space. And I, I guess I'd like to know a bit about your career path and how your partnership with Above Below came to be. And uh, if you can just give us a little bit of uh, background here. Sure, I'd be delighted to. I have an atypical background, uh, to say the least. I began in book publishing back in uh, 1991 when people were shorter and still lived by the water. Back then, um, people read books on paper. Um, and I loved being in book publishing. I was, always a, I was always a reader and a writer and have been for, you know, as long as I can remember. And publishing was in its glory days right then. And I, I sort of wrote it down in the same way that, um, uh, that the end of Dr. Strangelove with the bomb and uh, riding down on top of the uh, on top of the city there. Um, it was wonderful. It was fabulous. And then it, and then back uh, it, at the at the beginning of the digital revolution, I held a an e-reader, an early e-reader. And at that moment, I knew that book publishing, as I had known it, was now dead because 
it was a transformative technology. And to Steve's point earlier, it was one that definitely involved some creative disruption. In that case, I would say disruption of a creative industry. And the fundamental thing that changed wasn't just the mechanism of reading, but also the business structures that powered publishing. Once Amazon began charging $10 for an ebook, when you were previously paying anywhere between $25 or down to $14 for a paperback, then the economics of the business no longer worked. And that's the moment where I knew I really had to leave. So I cast about for a little while while working as a literary agent, looking for different places to uh, apply my talents. And before long, I, I found myself at a company uh, then called Ogilvy & Mather, now called Ogilvy. It's the third largest advertising agency in the world. And I started doing some editorial consulting for them. After doing that for a few years, I began working for them as the worldwide editorial director, applying the editorial skills that I had learned in um, book publishing for two decades to the world of advertising and trying to introduce an editorial discipline into that. And that came about at the same time as advertising was transforming from a medium that talked to people to a medium that talked with people. And if you're going to do that, you need an editorial philosophy, one that understands the audience and appreciates the audience and is always trying to speak in the audience's language and answer their concerns. After a while working with Ogilvy, I uh, began to feel restless again, as is my want. And um, my brother, Joshua Katz, had been uh, appealing to me for a while to go into business together. And uh, we joined up to get forces and uh, started a boutique advertising agency and marketing agency and social media agency and editorial agency called Above Below Marketing. Uh, it's based in two places, San Francisco and in Philadelphia. And we take care of any number of challenges for uh, major brands uh, in the QSR space, in entertainment, uh, in advertising, and in technology. Um, we are we take an editorial approach to brand building. And what we like to say is we discover the soul of a brand and we bring it to life. So that's sort of a long and circuitous answer to your question, Skip. <laughs> All right, Jeremy, thank you. And, you know, brands today, it's something we talk about in endless meetings, uh, of course, uh, in conference rooms and, and during the past year on Zoom. But brands today, they jump on social media and they seem to want tons and tons of it. But, you know, my question is, because this is always a dilemma when a dilemma we're talking to an advertiser, a potential advertiser. As a brand, how do I go about shaping my messaging before I put it out there and, and, and mess some things up? <laughs> well, that, that's actually a, a really good question because messaging is messaging. Uh, let me take a step back. When you're looking at it from the perspective of media, messaging appears to be the thing that is a brand that a brand is engaging with you on. But before you get to messaging, a brand has to go through any number of different steps in order to set a firm brand foundation. Uh, and that's going to be something that allows the brand to uh, create a good messaging structure that will uh, power it over, you know, the course of its, its evolution. And this is true of a giant conglomerate like the Coca-Cola company where Steve used to work or, you know, your new startup that has just acquired some seed round funding or perhaps a mom and pop that has got one retail location and is looking to possibly expand. And that is that a brand needs to have a number of key attributes developed either by itself or by an agency partner. Uh, it needs to know its audience. It needs to know its stakeholders. That's beyond just its audience. And, and by audience, I mean the audience for its product and also the audience for its potential messages. Its stakeholders are people who own part of it, people who work there, people who are interested in it because they're other industry professionals, anybody who might be interested in that, as well as the audience. And then it needs to understand the mission. It has to develop a mission for itself. It has to develop a set of values that accompany that mission. It has to also have a purpose. These days, a brand without a purpose is really ineffectual. That purpose signals to your potential customers, to your industry partners, to the media, to those who are just simply interested in this space, that you exist and you stand for something beyond just pure commerce. And in an era when more and more people look to brands and companies in general to either reflect or to further their own priorities, going into market without a purpose is discounting the value of that whole swath of, of potential commercial partners. And it is enormous. You also need to have a creative platform. 
And once you've got all that set up, which is what we like to call a, a, a brand house, um, because when we put it on a PowerPoint slide, we make it look like a house because we're clever that way. Um, then, then you can start to develop the key messages. And those messages need to be specific to your brand and to the platform that your brand is articulating, but also flexible enough to be changed depending on the particular medium that you are speaking into. Brands exist in a landscape of multiple touch points between themselves and consumers. In order to be able to communicate with every one of those consumers and every one of those stakeholders, you have to be able to tailor your message to that consumer in the platform that they're existing at the time that they're interacting with you and for the occasion that they might be wanting to work with you. And that requires a key message that isn't just a declarative statement, but is instead something that has a lot of thought behind it that can be moved and stretched and pushed by a creative department, by a dynamic content system that might have already pre uh, pre-created a, a bunch of different approaches um, or any other mechanism to get to deliver your message to an audience. Interesting. You know, and Jeremy, I was amazed uh, maybe a, a few months ago, I, I sat down in my Sony PlayStation for a little bit of uh, NBA 2K and I was stunned because, uh, you know, I, I'm connected to the internet. My son likes to, you know, play some of his games with friends and all of a sudden here, pops a uh, NBA 2K TV network complete with hosts and they've got contesting holidays. You can game each other for prizes. They've got their own version of Bitcoin, which you can cash in for merchandise and, and, and NBA uh, prizes like shirts and things. I mean, it, it just feels like today everyone has their own little world to live in, filled with their own personal amusements and, and, and enjoyment. How is this affecting marketing to the masses today? Because that's a lot of what we do in radio. We, we geo-target, we use a lot of uh, data and strategic, uh, you know, work uh, into what we do. But, you know, it just seems like everyone has their own little fiefdom, their own little world they can disappear into. And how is that affecting our, our work as marketers today? Well, I, I think, Skip, you've identified one of the major forces that has shaped marketing in the digital era, and that is fragmentation. There are now so many different outlets for anyone, a listener, a viewer, a clicker, or just a plain old person who's engaging with something in the outdoor space that they can, um, that they can go to or that they do go to on a daily basis that we no longer can have any sort of assurance that a marketing message is reaching a substantial fraction of the population. Gone are the days when by advertising on Cronkite or um, putting something up on um, Hot 97, uh, you were sure you were going to, and sorry, I just totally name-checked a radio station other than yours, Skip. Bad move, but we'll <laughs> oh, get fine. over it. Oh, that is yours? Yeah, yeah. Yes, that yeah, is yours? You're right on right time. <laughs> there we go. Do you want my bank routing number now or later? Hey, hey, hey. we'll take it now these days. <laughs> um, so um, that you're able to reach, uh, you're not able to be assured of reaching that same mass of people that you were before because they're in so many different places. And that really imposes an terrible burden on marketers in order to create a consistent message that exists across a number of different platforms and touch points. So that if an individual encounters your brand on Facebook and then hears about you on Hot 97 and then maybe watches um, Netflix and sees your brand in a product placement and finally goes onto the internet and sees an ad that follows them around uh, every site that they go to because of a, um, a third-party cookie on the machine. We as marketers have to make sure that that experience that they're having with the brand is consistent. Otherwise, some of those marketing messages and impressions are wasted. Worse, they can give a poor example of what the brand stands for, and that could actually alienate customers. So silent fragmentation has been a primary goal of marketers throughout the digital era. Now, you have to do that without losing a sense of who you are as a brand and just become wallpaper, which is the other risk. You become risk becoming so bland that you no longer really even exist as a brand. You simply are a set of anodyne messages that 
can easily be transported from place to place. And this is where creatives earn their money, is in finding a way to create something that is recognizable, distinctive, and coherent across a number of different touch points. And from where we said it above below, we believe that this is actually the role of editorial, that an editorial philosophy, an editorial understanding, an understanding that begins and ends with the audience and how that audience can interact with a brand or product or message or purpose is what sets a brand apart and gives it a consistency across every single touch point. That's essentially the set of guardrails for what a brand can and cannot do. The other thing that's important to consider with this is the perils of a misstep because brands have to be very careful when they're going through all these different touch points, that there is absolutely no daylight between what they say they stand for and how they actually behave. So that leads us to another touch point. And that touch point is the behavior of the brand itself, both within its walls and how it treats its employees and also within its entire supply and value chain. So those are now part of the marketing department's messaging structure as well. Really interesting. And it's funny, you just answered. You know, one of our dilemmas in the, in the radio side, it is uh, conforming to a certain sameness with, uh, as Mel Carmison used to put it, uh, you know, I'm not paying jocks to introduce commercials. And, you know, radio and TV, we have been pushing, you know, just, I can't, the word hard doesn't even describe, uh, to find ways to combine our traditional selling efforts with digital strategies to keep advertisers from straying to pure play uh, solutions. And, you know, from from an outside view, because that's something we don't get enough in our, our business cycle. You know, what what's radio doing right and, and, and wrong? Any any thoughts there from just, you know, eye in the sky, perhaps? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm always happy to opine on things I know very little about. <laughs> the um, the to me, the, the pandemic produced a really difficult problem for radio to solve. Not over the short term, everybody's lives were disrupted, but I worry over the long haul as commuting patterns are going to stay changed. Fewer people are going to be in the car at drive time than there were before the pandemic. Hybrid work is here to stay. There was an article in the New York Times today about the perils that business districts run when they have a substantial percentage of their office of their land and tax base in office space. Uh, that's a real risk in the future world where there will be fewer people in, their, in offices. I think radio suffers from a similar risk. Obviously, drive time has been the, the gold mine for radio over the years. But what I see that radio is doing right is integration with smart speakers. Um, and I, I see very encouraging data on that as well. And I think the future is actually fairly bright there. Um, radio has adapted over the years from it being a console, in, you know, a crystal set and a console in your living room to a transistor that moved with you uh, to uh, a, a, a mobility device in your car. Um, and now it's adapting once again to move into a smart speaker. And, um, and I think it, radio needs to solve some problems there. It needs to become more discoverable in smart speaker, which means smarter voice search engine optimization. That's going to be one of the major things that all brands, radio, TV, everybody, uh, consumer products brands, you name it, has to solve voice search optimization. Because when you ask your digital assistant, either the one on your phone or the one on your shelf, um, to give you a recommendation or to answer a question, it's going to pull the top one or maybe, if you're lucky, the top two answers. So now the only place, the only ranking that matters in search is the first one for voice. So radio has to fix that, has to figure out how it can get at the very top of the search engine of, of the search engine for a um, for a particular query. Obviously for Alexa, that's gonna be skills and, and, and the like, but there are, uh, for Google, it's more complicated there. Um, we know that radio lifts recall and that's been well proven. And so radio, either terrestrial radio or digital radio, uh, combined with digital advertising is a bright spot for radio in the future. Um, I think podcasting, as NPR has done so well, um, is a wonderful bright spot for radio in the future. And that all leads us back again to the digital assistant and the, and the smart speakers. Um, we know already that there are, depending on the estimate you look at, between one, third, one quarter and one third of all US households have a smart speaker. Mm -hmm. 
We also know that the number one use of that smart speaker is to ask for the weather, which is manifestly stupid because you're spending $500 on something to go instead of sticking your head out the window or looking at your phone. Um, but the number two use is AM FM radio. And 24% of AM FM radio right now, according to one source that I checked, is done on smart speakers. And this is the, actually the source is NPR, sorry. And this is up from 18% the prior year. So it's a significant increase. And when you couple that with the increase that's happening in smart speaker adoption as a whole, which is 135% year over year, it sure looks to me like radio may have found a way of insulating itself from some of the fragmentation we talked about in my answer to the previous question. And that is by becoming the killer app for one of the most widely used devices in the American home. Yeah, that's one thing. One other thing I just want to add before mm -hmm. I, I stop and I know I'm monologuing and I apologize. Oh, no, this is great. Um, uh, we always think of Spotify and Pandora as being the things that people do on their smart speakers. Interestingly, this same study found that people listen to AM FM radio at twice the rate on their smart speakers that they do to music streaming services, which I found fascinating. Uh, yeah, that that is very surprising, but it's something I had been uh, privy to just because, you know, we over the past several years and I moved from programming to the sales marketing side over the holidays. But a couple of years ago, as PD, I said, you know, we're going to add some promos for smart speakers, our digital uh, director at the time. Uh, who's no longer with the company, uh, said, hey, man, I'm getting some crazy data here. You're, you're going to really need to start promoting smart speaker use for BLS. And, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've kind of always been an early adapter on technology. So, you know, I, I went on, but we had people actually, uh, it, it, you know, higher up than me push back and, oh, why are you taking up your airtime? I'm like, because people are telling me they've got Alexa at home. That's why. And, you know, pretty soon, uh, Apple started to upgrade Siri. Uh, others were using Google Home. And, and so, you know, we definitely have seen uh, an explosion uh, in smart speaker use. And, and, and totally, Jeremy, I agree. Um, and, you know, we've seen uh, this Clubhouse app rise during the pandemic. Uh, Instagram over the past several years has added everything from Insta stories and uh, parent company Facebook has a clubhouse like uh, thing called rooms. Now uh, the iPhone has a more zoom like FaceTime application that you can use for your meetings. That's coming this fall. That's business oriented. Um, and, and we're not even at 5g yet. When, when we finally have access to 5g, cause I know I've died, click mine all the time and it never seems to connect but once we start getting 5g in these big cities like what what's what's around the corner oh boy uh what isn't around the corner um <laughs> you know for one thing um you can't stay up to date with it all that's a recipe for further fragmentation at least from a brand's point of view that's a recipe for further fragmentation and it's a recipe for employee burnout um so one of the things I think that, that you have to do is dedicate a portion of your staff, ideally some younger people, to merely just staying on top of what's going on. Um, sure. And you're not going to invest in everything as a marketer um, as, when it comes up. Uh, it just doesn't pay to do that. Again, you'll just further fragment your brand. You want to pilot things on um, on applications that look like they have some promise. Um, so when Clubhouse looked like it had some promise, brands started to pilot there. And some early adopters were even there before. And those people tend to be the sort of, you know, quote unquote endemics. Uh, think about the the um, uh, the esports space. Uh, you know, now it's an enormous part of the, uh, of the landscape. Uh, it's bigger than several professional sports leagues in terms of its viewership. Uh, something like 89% of males 18 to something, I can't remember the, the upper range age, um, are, are viewers of esports. I mean, it's shocking. People who are on Twitch spend an hour on average there. I mean, it's shocking um, <laughs> how, how, much it, how much time and, and, and what size it is. So that was really occupied by brands initially that were endemic to that space. Sure. Now, other brands are coming in there and they're very smart to do so. Um, and I think the same thing is probably the pattern that should follow for all other innovations that are coming down the pike. And one of those innovations is 5G. Like you mentioned, you can't get a signal, a 5G signal. And you're in New York. Um, imagine yeah. what I can get here in suburban Philadelphia, which is bupkis. Um, and the reason <laughs> that, for that is that um, 5G, there's, there's, there's low band, mid band, and high band 5G. 
Um, most of the 5G that's been rolled out already is on the lower band area. And that's because it's essentially an upgraded form of 4G LTE. Uh, it's using some of the same technologies. And I am not a technologist, so I'll make this shut up now so I don't screw it up any further. But the point here is that um, right now 5G is still in its, you know, in its in its infancy as far as its rollouts are concerned. Um, and so you're not getting a 5G signal because it's not really there yet. There's a fundamental problem with 5G that's and it's a physical problem and it and it needs to be solved by investment in infrastructure and that is that when you want to get those incredibly high speeds the being able to download a entire feature film in seconds you need to be on high band 5G which requires millimeter band radio now your phone can hear that but in order to actually be within range of a network you need to be within a few I think it's 100 feet or a few, well, I can't remember the number, but you need to be within within a number of feet of that antenna. So that means you're going to have to put antennas on buildings and streetlights and traffic lights in dense areas. And now, once you move into suburban areas and rural areas, it's going to take even longer to create that density of antennas uh, in order to be able to provide true 5G service to a broad swath of the population, no matter what the cellular companies add say about the coverage that they might have in the country. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, Jeremy, listen, I really appreciated your insight, and, and I know I plan to stick around your LinkedIn and, and other sites. Let, can you let us know how to reach you and, and how to catch up with you socially? Sure, absolutely. Um, I, uh, much to my, uh, to, following my own advice about fragmentation, I only spend time <laughs> on LinkedIn because that's Great. the place that I am. I am able to engage with uh, and, and do a good job of curating them. So please follow me on LinkedIn. I'm just Jeremy Katz. Uh, you'll find me easily above below marketing. Um, and uh, you'll also find me under Ogilvy since I still have a role at Ogilvy as well. Um, and uh, you can always reach me by email if you're interested at uh, Jeremy at abovebelowmarketing.com. Wonderful. Well, Jeremy, I'd like for you to stick around for a few minutes in case anyone has any questions. And of course. I really appreciate it. I'll turn it back over to my partner, Lloyd Ford. Lloyd, it's on you. Boy, it's so interesting. You know, uh, you're getting kind of a, a little study tonight from the professors, if you will. Uh, <laughs> a lot of really heavy information, but I love it when a guy comes on and uses the word butt kiss because, I mean, come on. It just fits right i i also do want to say this just to sp stick up for my friends in the audio business uh we didn't mention the influence of big bigger than life personalities people who are influencers who can connect these experiences the actual experiences of these audio brands taking consumers or taking uh, these folks and connecting them to experiences and the value of that. Uh, I, I do want to say, look, if, if you have questions for our guest tonight, now is your time. If you haven't hit the raise your hand button at the bottom of your phone, please do so now. Of course, uh, you'll see a hand at the bottom of your iPhone or your Android. Just hit that button and we'll do the rest. Of course, uh, we do ask that you mute your mic when we bring you up onto stage. We will address you. And uh, at that point, uh, you'll be able to speak. And so the very first person that we have, of course, would be somebody who, for me, does not have a name. So that's that's sort of lovely. I'm going to say hey, how you doing, Jimmy? media guru. How are you, sir? Do you have a question for somebody on our very panel? Well. No, I just wanted to like emphasize on what you were saying about the the industry is, is, is way different now. You know, things are shifting and you got to understand that we, we're, we're on the forefront of a lot of changes and who's innovating and who's following the, the, the leader, you know, because right. either within the music industry, you got one or two things. You got the people that are actually like that know the urban side and know the digital side, or you got the labels that are just getting the digital off of a third party. So, you know, what's going to what's going to win in the long run? Well, that's just part of innovation, isn't it? You've got winners and losers. Yes, sir. And we're number winners here. 
Well, I, I appreciate that. And uh, listen, let me do say this, that uh, we do try to keep things uh, a little bit on the side of about an hour. We are recording this event for the inclusion in our The Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, and a few other dozen platforms later this evening, probably within an hour or so. Again, a big thank you goes to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast associated with The Encouragers and Just Joe Productions for handling our audio footprint and the distribution of podcasts so that you and others may listen to it anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, he does that and does an exceptional job for us. We appreciate that. As we try to maintain things at about an hour, I do want to thank Steve Caldwell for joining us and Jeremy Katz for being excellent guests tonight. Thank you to Skip Dillard for creating this event and being an excellent co-host. Don't forget to come back Monday, 7 p.m., Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for the Radio Rally. Wednesdays, this event that you're listening to now, 7 p.m., 4 p.m. on Wednesdays, Innovation and Audio. Get updates anytime on our guest schedules. You can find those at RainmakerPathway.com. Share the encouragers on Clubhouse with your radio and audio friends. If you're on Facebook, you can go to my Facebook page later tonight, L-O-Y-D-F-O-R-D, and share the new guest for the next week that I'll be sharing uh, on Facebook within a couple of hours. Next Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, Innovation and Audio. Rob Barnett, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Rob Barnett Media and Elroy Smith with Elroy Smith, the coach will be here. Thank you for being a part of this live event. And thank you for being an encourager. Be kinder than you have to be. And good night.